Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, Greg and I answer listener questions about the optimal rate of weight gain while bulking, rep ranges for hypertrophy, soreness, concurrent training, a variety of recovery modalities, and more. To finish off the episode, Greg and I talk about why research should still be valued and applied, despite the likelihood that there's probably some low-quality research hiding within the literature out there. If you want your questions answered on a future episode, we now have a new process for submitting questions. Questions can be submitted by typing in the URL tiny.cc sbsqa, or you can just click on the link in the episode description. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. We're here with another Q&A episode. Before we get into business, we do want to address something because there's a lot of rumors flying around, a lot of misinformation on the internet. So Greg and I did a lasagna cook-off not too long ago, and uh, the results were in. There were some initial results coming out that weren't quite uh, legitimate, hadn't been really verified yet. Basically what went down is people ate my lasagna, and literally people said things such as, quote, I could eat this. Um, Where's the cottage cheese? Which came up, that was a big point of contention. A lot of people were worried, can Eric masterfully kind of put that into the lasagna food matrix yes people could not find it uh, they had no idea so all in all uh, flavor wise texture wise uh, presentation wise I would say it was probably about a draw but tie goes to the lowest macros so I think I came out on top yeah so that's actually not at all what happened um, so it, it was so painfully obvious on the front end that it was going to be an absolute bloodbath that Eric's girlfriend actually defected to Team Greg uh, about 48 hours beforehand. We... That's my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so Eric's current girlfriend, um, and we made beautiful homemade noodles, homemade meat sauce, homemade uh, cheesy bechamel. It was absolutely incredible. Of the six people there, uh, five of them said that it was the best homemade lasagna they'd ever had. The only one that didn't was Eric, um, for obvious reasons. It was just—it was possibly the biggest runaway victory in any cook-off that has ever occurred. Um, if if you were paying attention to my Instagram story that night, you saw the cross sections of Eric's. It was one just an objectively sad cross section, and two not the cross-section of a lasagna. Uh, I think, if anything, I won by default because I was the only one that made a lasagna that was entered into the competition. Creativity counts. Yours was a joke. There was no... It wasn't inspired. There was no unique spin on it. <laughs> I, I pushed the boundaries of lasagna. If you want to disqualify it for being creative, that's on you. It, it was arguably a chicken dip. What, it was what, a good chicken what, dip, if that's what you're calling it. One could construe it as a passable chicken dip, but not a lasagna. Okay, so I thought we'd reached a conclusion here. Clearly, there's still a lot of misinformation, so we're just going to leave it <laughs> in the past and never talk about it again. Um, completely unrelated note, please keep applying for the co-host position for this podcast. I get a lot of good applications, and uh, as things get more and more tense between Greg and I, I'm believe me i'm looking through them all hours of the day try and find the right fit and 
Also on that same topic, keep blowing up Eric's inbox, uh, lobbying to have me stay on as the co-host. Um, several hundred of you so far have messaged him to voice support for me staying on. Um, I don't think we'll be able to to crack through his rough outer shell until at least probably three to 4,000 people message him. So if you're listening to this, shoot Eric a message. Say, you got a good thing going with the podcast now. Don't ruin it. Keep Greg on. Every single one of you needs to message his personal inbox on Facebook or Instagram. Let him know. Honestly, so some people have done that. And <laughs> every message I get gets me closer to firing his ass. <laughs> so if you think you're helping, you're just making me extremely angry and you're putting Greg's livelihood in jeopardy as it pertains to this show. All right. You want to get into some questions? Let's do it. All right. So a uh, question we have leading off is for Eric. Um, very straightforward question. So Eric, uh, slow gain versus bulking, which I assume implies a, a faster rate of weight gain. Uh, what are the pros and cons? So this one is, uh, it's pretty intuitive. Uh, a lot of people, whenever somebody kind of lands on the goal that they want to put on some some mass now the question is how much and how quickly and i mean the, the pros and cons are pretty obvious when you go with a slow rate of weight gain you're probably going to increase the proportion of lean mass that's gained relative to fat mass most likely you're probably going to minimize falling into that trap where yeah you gained some lean mass but you added a ton of fat in the process because you were just in a huge caloric surplus um, now, the downside of that is, theoretically, you could be leaving some gains on the table. So um, it, it is possible that you are gaining uh, lean mass at a slower rate than you otherwise could have if your caloric intake was a little higher. So, you know, it, it's obviously very tricky to strike that balance. And there's pros, pros and cons of going slow, and there's pros and cons of going more rapidly with it. Um, unequivocally, going slow with your weight gain is far less fun. Uh, so dreamer bulks are awesome. And a dreamer bulk, if you're not familiar with the terminology, they call it a dreamer bulk because you just delude yourself into thinking like, oh, I'm clearly just getting huge when in reality you're putting on like a ton of fat. But I think everyone that's kind of big did at least one dreamer bulk in their career. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, probably so. I think everybody has. And the food choices when you're doing a dreamer bulk are just off the charts awesome. So like there was a time where I was eating a pizza every day, a couple pounds of chicken, a few grilled cheese sandwiches, like eight eggs. And this was all on the same day. It was just calories on top of calories and it was awesome. The problem was, I think I've told this story on the podcast before, at a certain point, I was getting a lot stronger putting on size, but my very trusted roommate, a great friend of mine named Nick, pulled me aside and said, hey, Eric, no one likes you enough to tell you this, but you're getting really fat. <laughs> and, and at the time, I was dumbfounded because I had bought into the dreamer bulk. I was like, no, I'm just getting huge. And he's like, nope, no, you're pretty fat. And then I looked in the mirror. And I was like, oh, no, you're correct. So th there's a balance to be struck there. Funny story is when I was fully bulked up in my dreamer bulk, I did get struck by an automobile when I was crossing the street. Um <laughs> And, and I really believe that if I wasn't just completely bloated and bulked up and just full of padding, I really think that would have gone worse if I took the lean gain 
kind of approach. <laughs> so I, I yeah, not lean gains like intermittent fasting, yeah, yeah. but if I took the slower rate of weight gain and stayed lean, I'm not sure how well I would have absorbed that car. So sometimes dreamer bulk save lives. I would say so. It was pretty wild. Like I got nailed by the car. It was completely fine. So, so Eric, have you heard the, uh, the classic West side story of JM Blakely's diet? I believe, I believe you've told me, but okay. So, so for the listeners who have never heard of this, it's, it's a legendary story. I don't know who shared it with the masses first, but JM Blakely was a bench specialist who trained at Westside Barbell. And I want to say at one point he had all of the multiply bench records from like 181 all the way up to 275. It may have been 198 up to 275, but very wide range of weight classes. And um, he took those records in pretty quick succession, starting with the lighter weight classes and, and just working up from there. And so I forget who it was. It may have been Dave Tate, but don't quote me on that. Uh, but someone new came to Westside. They were having trouble putting on weight, filling out their weight class. And so either JM pulled pulled this individual aside or someone who JM had told his secrets to pulled this individual aside. They're like, you're having trouble gaining weight. Here's what you got to do if you want to get big and jacked. So every day for breakfast, you need to go to McDonald's, get like four breakfast sandwiches, get four hash browns, put the hash browns on the breakfast sandwich, get four things of mayonnaise, put like a whole package of mayonnaise on each one of these hash brown breakfast sandwich combos, eat that, that's your breakfast. For lunch, you're going to go to a Chinese buffet, Um, make sure it is not a no MSG Chinese buffet, so you'll be able to keep eating longer. Um, Sit down, don't get up, except to get more food for like an hour and a half. Just eat everything you possibly can, at least four or five solid plates of food. And then for dinner, you're going to get an extra large pizza. You're going to drizzle an extra like cup of olive oil over top of it. You're going to eat that whole pizza. That's your dinner. And then you also need to get like eight king size Snicker bars and eat those throughout the day as well as snacks between meals. And so you add all of that up. It's like 12,000 calories or something. And apparently that's how J.M. Blakely, you know, went from 181 to 275 or whatever it was. Um, And so that became kind of like lore within that subculture. But the part of that story that people don't tell is, to the best of my knowledge, J.M. never cut back down to 181 to defend that record. (laughs) (laughs) That was a one-way street. Yeah, that that was... (laughs) That was dietary advice going purely in one direction. (laughs) (laughs) So that is a thing to keep in mind. Like if I could go back with my dreamer bulk uh, scenario, I I do kind of regret letting my body fat get as high as it did because it just made the subsequent cut that much harder. I mean, you can lose it, but you are to some extent kind of digging a hole to get out of. Now, Getting to actual like useful numbers here, there's a couple really good review papers recently that I I believe they're both open access, which means you don't need some kind of license to read them or anything. Uh, One is by Slater et al., the other by Iraqi et al., um, both in 2019, so very recent. And they're talking about basically how important is it to be in a caloric surplus when you're trying to gain muscle? And also, what are some off-season guidelines for people that are interested in physique 
competition. So basically bodybuilding. Um, now, generally speaking, what you what you take away from these two papers is uh, the probably the ideal approach for most folks is aiming to gain about 0.25 to 0.5% of body weight per week. And to put you in the ballpark of achieving that, you're probably getting your calories about 10 to 20% above the maintenance level that you would need purely to maintain body weight. Now, if you're super experienced, you might want to go slower. If you believe that you've gained a lot of the muscle that you stand to gain in your career and you don't have that much left to add before you're kind of at your limit genetically, then you'd probably want to go slower um, because at that point, you don't need to be overfeeding to capitalize on these rapid, huge muscle gains because they're probably not coming. Whereas if you're completely new to this stuff, you can absolutely gain gain at a faster rate than that, or at least toward the higher end of that range. Uh, so you have to kind of be honest with yourself about, you know, how much weight do, do I really think I can pack on from where I'm at now? And if you've got a lot of room to go, you can go a little bit faster with it. Uh, but if you're kind of near what you perceive as your uh, kind of as good as you're going to get in terms of lean mass and be honest with yourself, because I think a lot of people underestimate a lot of people live for like six months and they're like, well, I guess this is it. And, and they actually could could go quite a lot further with it. Um, but one other caveat to keep in mind, you have to think of, you know, what's your end goal? You know, you don't want to put on a ton of body fat if your end goal is to get shredded. So think of that. Think of where you are in your lifting career beginner, intermediate, advanced. And then also you're going to want to account for the fact that some people have a pretty large and robust adaptive increase in energy expenditure when they start overeating. So some people, um, and it's been well documented in the research literature, if you start overfeeding them, their, their energy expenditure ramps up like crazy. And they're actually quite resistant to weight gain. Uh, despite the fact that you're trying to overfeed them. Uh, so you never really know where you're going to fall on that spectrum till you try. But yeah. so, so one, one thing just to restate what Eric just said that, that I do think people get confused about is if you're currently at maintenance and let's say at maintenance, you're eating 2,500 calories a day, for example, and then you increase calorie intake by 300 calories a day. And so now you're eating 2,800 calories a day and like you don't gain any weight or don't gain hardly any weight. I see a lot of people looking at that and saying like, dude, I'm in a 300 calorie surplus and nothing is happening. By definition, you're not in a 300 calorie surplus. You are still at maintenance and adaptations have taken place either metabolically or via NEAT to keep you still at maintenance, but just at a higher maintenance level. Yeah. Maintenance is a range, not a number. Yeah. And, and so if, if you acutely overfeed or underfeed, you're going to see that maintenance number shift around a little bit. So that, that, that's exactly what I'm getting at is the fact that, you know, in the, uh, I think it was the Iraqi paper where they gave that 0.25 to 0.5% body weight per week. I think that's the, the one of those two papers that it came from. Um, but th that is, uh, you know, they say about a 10 or 20% uh, increase in calories above maintenance, but it, it's so hard to tell how much your energy expenditure is going to ramp up when you start overfeeding. So you really have to play it by ear. You have to watch this, the scale closely. And that's the biggest mistake people make when they're trying to gain muscle and are really concerned about gaining fat is they, they try to put their bulk at a rate of weight gain that is exceptionally slow. 
and it, it's it's almost so slow that the human eye can't see it on a scale. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, your day-to-day weight is going to fluctuate by, I don't know, a couple pounds, give mm-hmm. or take, you know, depending on how large you are. And so we're, we're talking about gaining, you know, decimals, you know, tenths of pounds over a couple weeks uh, when people try to take this really slow approach and they're like, well, not working. And so the really tricky thing is finding that balance where you can actually keep an eye on your, you know, you're making enough progress to track it. And you're not just scrapping the whole plan and saying, screw it, tried it, didn't work. So um, I, I think the the out the recommendation, recommendations that they outline in Slater et al. and Iraqi et al. are a really good starting point. And then from there, you got to play it by ear and watch the scale. So can I just toss another question in here? Yes. So this comes from our list of Q&A questions people have submitted. Uh, I forget who asked it. But I thought it was a pretty good question, and I think it it dovetails pretty well off of your answer to the previous question. So what this person asked was basically, um, one of the things you said leading off your answer to that question is, you know, most people who are in fitness, either strength sports or physique sports, have done a dreamer bulk at some point. Like you have, I have, virtually everyone I know who's been lifting for at least 10 years has at some point or another done a dreamer bulk. Uh, and generally fairly early in their training process. And so, I mean, you recommend a pretty conservative surplus generally. I do too. Pretty much everyone I know does. Yet we all went through that dreamer bulk. So do you think that there's some sort of conflict there? Like, you know, we've clearly got maybe not to the place we want to be, but we've made some good gains. One of the things we did along the way was a dreamer bulk, and we're telling people not to do what we did. So is there some hypocrisy there, or do you think it's more like we learned our lesson from our dreamer bulks? I would say it's more the the, the latter. I feel like I learned my lesson from the dreamer bulk. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I could be wrong. Maybe it's the one thing that we all think we did wrong and actually is the secret <laughs> to, to get getting decently big and strong. But I lean toward the other scenario that is, I feel like in the time that I gained all that mass, I feel like I could have taken it a little bit, not even slower, but I, I just could have not overeaten by so much mm-hmm. um, and taken a slightly more uh, calculated and thoughtful approach. Because literally it was just like, I'm going to eat until I feel sick. Mm-hmm every meal and just try it's like like you were saying with with the the diet you laid out i think the quote from if you're talking about the same article i'm thinking of it was like screw it olive oil canola oil anything but motor oil right yeah 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 that that was the exact article (laughs) yeah so it's like that it's the beauty of that approach is its simplicity Mm -hmm. i'm going to lift like i'm trying to kill myself with the weights and i'm going to eat everything i could possibly eat if you do that, you're probably you're probably going to grow. Mm-hmm. But the question is like, did you then add on a bunch of fat that you didn't want to add on, and then required you to do more cutting than you would have wanted to? And and for me, that's the spot I got to because I transitioned right from that dreamer bulk into a contest prep. <laughs> like, because it, it, I I literally this is a true story. I got hit by the damn car, and then I realized like, oh, I'm healthy, and I'm not injured. And I probably should be injured, but like I'd never done bodybuilding. And I was like, I better give this a a shot before I get myself 
hurt in the gym or walk in front of another car. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I went straight from a, a dreamer bulk into a contest prep and, you know, had to cut a good 40 pounds to not even get that lean because, mm-hmm. like, I wasn't lean. I, I, like, won the novice category but would not have done damage in the open. Yeah. Like, yeah. way too fat. So, so yeah, I mean, I think I learned my lesson where I was like, oh, well, this could have been a lot easier if I didn't, if instead of eating four grilled cheeses after the pizza, if I had two, mm-hmm. I still would have made the gains, you know? So, th- I don't know. Do you feel differently? I do kind of wonder if it's different for strength athletes and physique athletes. And, and especially, I would say probably for, for drug-free strength athletes who maybe just naturally have a somewhat higher body fat set point. So one of the things that I've seen with, like not a tremendously large number of lifters, but a a decent amount is people who like, you know, I've gotten to know them well enough that I know that they were fat kids, you know, like before they got into sports, before they got into string sports, like they were chubby little kids. And then they get into lifting, they get pretty lean, they wind up in a weight class that looks like on paper it should be pretty good for them and then they stall out hard there and just say you know fuck it gonna get big put on a fair amount of weight not always super high quality weight um like they probably did put on proportionally quite a bit more fat than muscle but then when they move up to the next weight class even though their body comp is worse not only are they way stronger but their wilk score is also better And so I wonder if like, I wonder like if in a general sense, getting leaner probably shouldn't on average hurt people's strength all that much. But for people who were like chubbier growing up, if for whatever reason, I don't know what the mechanism would be. You're just for whatever reason, stronger at a slightly higher body fat level. Um, So, I mean, I, I don't think that that would be an argument for dreamer bulking from already being at a higher body fat level but maybe if you did get lean at some point doing a bit of a dreamer bulk you know not like putting on 50 pounds but putting on like 20 may do something for you yeah that's one of the things that's always perplexed me and i i don't think i have a good answer for it but when i was like really bulked up and like pretty I had a lot of padding on me. Mm-hmm. I was strong. Yeah, I mean, dude. <laughs> and it, it wasn't muscle, but God, I was strong. Like adipose tissue does not have contractile function, but there are, there are times that I question that. I know. Like, like I, I, I know it doesn't, but sometimes I wonder. Dude, I mean, you've seen me bench a million times. Mm-hmm. When I was all bulked up and fat and stuff, 350 was not a problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm not touching that right now. Yeah. I'm not even close. But yeah, I, I've seen the same thing. I, it's it's one of those questions that has bothered me probably since I was 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Why was I so strong when I was fat? Because <laughs> it wasn't yeah, muscle. Yeah, because you, you probably have more muscle now than you did then. Probably, yeah. Yeah. I don't get it, man. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that's one of those things where several folks when I've just like gotten them alone and had a conversation with them about this, we all kind of acknowledge like, yeah, there seem to be a fair amount of people that, you know, get them up to about 20% body fat. They're just way fucking stronger than they are at 15%. But, but that's not something that people talk about publicly. 
because there there's no known mechanism that would explain why that would be the case. And so I think yeah. people don't want to put that take out there because they know they don't have an explanation for it. But I, I'm, I mean, I think it's a legitimate occurrence, but I don't feel comfortable even attempting to to speculate about why it would be. No, and the funny thing is, if you're like, if you're in the powerlifting, bodybuilding, like hybrid world, mm-hmm. uh, which is where I occupied for a while, um, so everyone convinces themselves they're like, oh, my numbers are nice. I'm used to cutting twenty five pounds whenever I feel like it. If I just keep all my strength <laughs> and cut twenty five pounds, I swear I've tricked myself into that probably three different, probably three different times since mm-hmm. I was like. At that, I think that's because I grew up in wrestling, mm-hmm. and so it's you're like, well, if I'm this strong at 160, what if I wrestled 119? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, then you're not going to be strong anymore, <laughs> you know. But yeah. I, I convinced myself I was going to be like the greatest 148 lifter on the planet based on my like 185 lifts, and then the second I lost like five pounds, I was like, oh, I'm weak again. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how it goes, man. Yeah. All right, Greg. Let's uh, let's uh, switch gears here. And we've got a question for you from 81NC19. The question is, Greg, how do routines with sets of 20 to 30 reps differ for hypertrophy uh, when compared to similar volume sets of 8 to 12 repetitions? Is the response similar? So if, if by similar volume you mean same number of sets performed to failure or close to failure, then yeah, hypertrophy is going to be pretty similar. If you mean hypertrophy in terms of like volume load, um, then I would assume you'd get more hypertrophy doing the sets of 8 to 12. But also, we've talked about this on the podcast before. I've talked about this on Stronger by Science. Volume load isn't a great metric for most applications. So if you're talking about set volume, then on a per set basis, assuming sets are taken pretty close to failure, hypertrophy should be similar. Um, However... One thing that I think is important to note here is you have to consider the question of practicality. So, you know, like let's say doing three sets of 20 RM squats and doing three sets of 8 RM squats are going to get you pretty similar hypertrophy. That's a cool little tidbit to know, but if you were setting up a training program and you're going to do, you know, three hard sets of eight or three hard sets of 20 twice a week for the next 16 weeks, and you can get the same gains from either one of those setups, virtually everyone's going to go with the sets of eight because the sets of 20 fucking suck. So if you can get the same progress with less general suckage, you probably want to go for the sets of eight to 12. And then also like... Research isn't set up to figure out what the maximal amount someone could grow with like a perfectly optimized program is. Like most most studies use fairly conservative training volumes just to make sure that, you know, you don't wind up with a bunch of people injured and your IRB mad at you. So one thing we also know is that higher weekly set volumes tend to cause more muscle growth. And so, you know, let's say you're trying to do 15 hard sets of quad work per week. That's probably going to be very doable with sets of 8 to 12. It may be theoretically possible, but just just crush you 
if you're doing sets of 20 to 30 for all 15 of those sets. So like, yeah, the, the answer to that question is if you do equate the number of sets, doesn't really seem to matter all that much what rep range you train in within reason. But practically, I think sets of maybe five to 12 reps are what you see most people doing in the gym for a reason. Um, that's a, that's a pretty wide rep range. So, you know, if you don't want to train super heavy, maybe for, for joint issues or something, you kind of go with the lighter, higher rep end of that range. Maybe if you're doing something that is very metabolically taxing, like squats or deadlifts, you don't really want to do the sets of 10 to 12. Maybe now you're doing sets of five to eight, like whatever, but that's a pretty big range. And it's where you see most generally successful programs gravitating towards. I think there's a reason for that. Like it gets you good growth per set. It generally sucks less than the super high rep stuff. And it's a generally good practical range of, of, uh, reps per set to train in. The other thing I'll say though, is like the exercise you're doing matters a lot. So, you know, if sets to 20 or sets of 20 are just as good as sets of eight to 12 for growth, and you really, really like to get a huge pump and a super intense burn when you're doing arm work, like sure, do sets of 20 for curls and tricep extensions. Like that's perfectly fine. Um, and that's probably going to be, you know, generally more enjoyable and feasible than doing sets of 20 for squats and deadlifts. Um, so yeah, in theory, equate for sets, similar hypertrophy, regardless of rep range, practically kind of maybe five to 12 ish reps per set, um, is generally what works best for most people. Most of the time. Do you ever, I don't know if this is just me, but there are certain lifts that I don't let myself do high rep ranges with. Um, so the, the two that come to mind for me, whenever I start letting my bench press repetitions get high, I really feel the wear and tear on my shoulder, um, a pre-existing injury. Same thing with deadlifts and my old sacrum issues. Um, part of me wonders if just, you know, if I'm like, okay, I'm going to bench a set of 12. If because the load is so light that on the first four, I can have bad enough technique to make my tissues angry without like getting pinned under the weight. Does that make any sense? Like that I would make myself use heavier loads where if I like misgroove it or get lazy with technique, like I will acutely be completely screwed. Mm, I guess I could see that being... Because like I, I won't theoretically possible. I won't touch a bench press set over five reps. Not interested. So again, I have no research to back this up, but my my personal experience, I think, is similar but different in that I don't think it's so much form going on the first few reps when I'm not taking it seriously. I think it's more like, um. So one of the things, one of the things that you you often see, um for multi-joint exercises is that whatever the like main the main muscle contributing to it is you see like pretty high muscle activation for that muscle with pretty like reasonably low loads and then the other muscles that contribute to the lift ramp up in activation either as sets drag on or as you get to heavier and heavier loads so 
basically, so for example, there was a paper by Kroll and Golis from, I think, 2017, where they looked at EMG of the pecs, triceps, front delts, and maybe lats, um, with loads ranging from 70% of one rep max to 100% of one rep max. And what they saw with the pecs is that um, pec EMG didn't actually seem to change like virtually any at all between 70% loads and one rep max loads. But front delt EMG and especially tricep EMG ramped up dramatically as loads increased. Um, there's, there's a paper, I believe, by Robbins looking at multiple reps on the squat, finding something similar. So like from rep one, uh, quad EMG was pretty high, but EMG of the hamstrings and hip extensors started ramping up as people got closer to failure. And so a, a part of me wonders if like, when you're doing the really high rep stuff, since like the total amount of fatigue you generate is greater, which I feel like is self-evidently true. You know, if you put 90% on the bar, you know, rep one, you are 100% strong. If you fail rep four, that means you're 10% weaker than you were at the start of a set. If you put 50% on the bar, you know, rep one, you're 100% strong. When you eventually fail by rep 25 or whatever, you're 50% weaker than you were at the start of a set. So maybe just because you can generate more fatigue during the set, you're getting more and more of the muscles involved in the movement that generally wouldn't be quite as involved. And that just fatigue stuff that's not used to being fatigued, kind of like pulls stuff in ways it's not used to being pulled. That's that's kind of like my subjective experience with high rep stuff. Cause I do occasionally throw in high rep squats and deadlifts and like, I'll get sore from, you know, sets of five sets of eight, but I get a different kind of sore in different places from the high rep stuff. So that's my, that's my semi-informed take. Yeah. I remember I did see a talk at a conference several, several years back where somebody was looking at, um, I forget the the particulars of the study, but it was uh, a really cool study where they they fatigued the, the deltoids mm-hmm. and watched um, uh, the mechanics of a particular shoulder exercise throughout the course of the workout, mm-hmm. and the joint geometry really started to change. Like not the actual structural geometry, but the articulation of the glenohumeral joint as the surrounding musculature fatigued. Mm-hmm. It was changing the way they were moving in a very meaningful way. Yeah. Such yeah. that you could imagine like, oh, this is probably shifting some of the strain to structures that maybe don't want to be shouldering much of that strain. Or, or I wouldn't necessarily say wouldn't want to be, but just aren't as used to it. Correct. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, I I still wrestle with why that's the case, but it's like one of those things where if you touch your stove enough times, eventually you stop touching it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And like, for me, it's like, I I see like, oh, bench a set of 12. I'm like, I mean, I'll give you six doubles, but I'm Mm -hmm. not doing 12. No. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, so the, the, the explanation I gave, I already said this, but just to make super clear for the listeners, I'm not saying 100% for sure that's what happens, but based on my experience and some of the research I've seen, that's, again, a a semi-informed take on the topic. Makes sense to me. All right. Next question for you, Eric. Uh, How can we improve sleep to help training? Sleep's getting big. I I feel like more than ever, 
the last couple of years, you hear a lot more people talking about sleep as it pertains to athletes and training and stuff like that, which is a good thing. Cause I think, uh, I think we ignored it for a long time. Like we used to always, <laughs> it was always like a thing of pride. Like we got our guys in the gym at four in the morning. It's like, yeah, but they all went to bed at 11. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's, that's not a great plan. Or the whole, like I'll sleep when I'm dead. Well, con- congrats, bro. Like you're going to die 20 years earlier now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'll get, yeah, you'll have a great opportunity for that. Um, so there was a recent review paper by Vitaly et al. in 2019, open access, so anybody can read it. Um, what they did was within the paper, they gave a couple lists of recommendations. And instead of, uh, you know, running my mouth for 30 minutes and, and trailing off, I'm just going to give you the good stuff, get right to the lists with the highlights here. So one was called the Healthy Sleep Hygiene Top 10 Recommendations, and their source was was the UCSD Center for Pulmonary and Sleep Medicine Patient Information Handout. Uh, so they went ahead and republished it right there in the paper. Number one, don't go, don't go to bed until you're tired. If you're in bed and you're not tired, get out of bed. Go do something. I think that's one that I rarely hear, but that's a really good piece of advice. Like there's nothing worse than just laying there and staring at the ceiling. Not at all helpful for your sleep habits. Number two, get a regular bedtime routine. What's this face you're making? <laughs> that uh, that first piece of advice um, actually just like ruined my sleep for about five years. Why? Because you would just bail on the concept of sleeping and go work? I mean, dude, so, so people say, you know, Humans are supposed to, you know, have a natural 24-hour sleep-wake cycle. Um, he, he, I'm about to tell, like, a Greg is a special snowflake story. Yeah, don't don't hear this and think that it's going to apply to you. So, you know, if I don't go to bed until I'm sleepy, I will generally just, like, pull an all-nighter maybe, like, once out of every three nights. And it's not just... You know, like when I don't have stimulants in my system, when I'm not on screens, um, I still just don't get tired until, I don't know, maybe like six or seven in the morning. And then at that point, it's there's no point in going to sleep because I'm either going to get like two hours or sleep through the entire next day. But this is one of the reasons why, like one of the pieces of advice I was given when I started having sleep issues is, Oh, read a book to wind down. That doesn't fucking work for me because I get engrossed in what I'm reading. And then next thing I know, it's 9 a.m. My wife's waking up for the day and I'm like 80% of the way done with the book (laughs) and I'm still not tired yet. Um, So like in general, that's probably good advice. Uh, I previously took that advice. It didn't work well for me. Now I just like force myself to get my ass in bed. Sometimes I stare at the ceiling for four hours, but... I do on average sleep much more than I used to. Yeah. I mean, no one should be taking their sleep cues from you. <laughs> your, your situation is just different. Like you're, you're the person in the sleep study that has to have their data discarded. No. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's, what you've got going on is strange, but number one, don't go to bed till you're tired. If you're not tired, get out of bed till you get tired. Number two, have a regular bedtime routine. Um, you know, reading, a warm bath don't unless you're greg you know because you start reading and all of a sudden you're done with the book uh number three try to get up the same time every morning so routine is big for a lot of people your bedtime routine what you do before bed the time you go to bed the time you wake up um 
try to get a full night's sleep. This list says to avoid naps. I think people are moving away from that in the sleep research. I think naps are getting a lot better pressed than they used to, but ideally I think the scenario would be that you sleep so well at night that you don't feel inclined to take a nap later in the day. Um, Use your bed for sleep and intimacy only. Don't do a bunch of other random stuff in your bed. Don't be sitting in your bed doing homework and stuff like that. Avoid caffeine, avoid alcohol, don't smoke or use nicotine, um, especially within the hours preceding bed. Avoid super high-intensity exercise right before bed. Usually, I think just a couple hours is enough to wind down from that, but you know, obviously, you don't want to f- finish a sprint workout and hop right into bed. Uh, bedroom should be dark, quiet, kind of cool. You don't want it to be warm. And then they had some other tips and tricks. Now the blue blockers are getting pretty popular. I know Eric Helms reviewed a study on them in mass a couple issues ago. Uh, So avoiding blue light specifically a couple hours before bed can be a nice thing. One of the things I find interesting is now they're putting a lot of those LED stadium lights in and like LED street lights. Those things are awful in terms of the amount of blue light they emit. So like if you're in like an outdoor, you know, flag football league and you're playing till like 11 at night under some lights, that actually might be tough. It might be pretty tough. Um, a good idea is to get some bright natural light in the morning. So this blue light, it works both ways, right? So it kind of stimulates wakefulness. So it's nice to be exposed to light in the morning, but to try to kind of withdraw from that within the hours before bed. Uh, one, one on the list that people hate, don't hit the snooze button. That, that's a, a battle that a lot of people uh, have given up on, and I'm one of them. I need to get better at that. If you use your computer at night, there are some things you can do to reduce the amount of blue light that's coming out of it, either via software or I think there are actually physical covers as well that you can get. Um, higher carbohydrate meals, especially high glycemic index foods at night might be helpful. Uh, super high fat meals right before bed can be a little bit detrimental. And some people really struggle if they have really spicy high fat, high fat meals before bed kind of keeps them up from just their GI being a little upset. Uh, melatonin can work. Uh, don't want to get into all the specifics on how to dose and time that cause it's kind of a whole can of worms there, but that's really the only supplement I've ever felt really solid about as it pertains to sleep. Uh, there's a bunch out there, but melatonin is kind of the the king of the sleep supplements i think uh don't fall asleep with the tv on and i would say you probably don't want to do that with the radio on either um you want to eliminate any kind of stimulation that's going to disturb your your sleep quality here's one that's really really big that people forget you got to taper your fluid throughout the day you you shouldn't be waking up twice to urinate in the middle of the night a lot of people that like are like no i gotta drink two gallons of water a day or something especially in the physique athlete world you got to taper that stuff down. There's nothing cool about having to wake up. And didn't you say you used to purposely make yourself do that? Uh, yeah. So I used to, it was when we were talking about drinking a protein shake in the middle of the night. Yeah. I'd purposefully drink a bunch before I went to bed. So I, I could wake up in the middle of the night for my protein shake. <laughs> dude, you violate like every single aspect of this list. No. So dude, like these days I'm doing virtually everything on this list. Um, and I, except, except for the first one of waiting until I'm sleepy to go to bed, everything else I'm mostly doing, I'm being a good boy. Okay. I'm sleeping at least six nights a week. It's been (laughs) awesome. (laughs) What's your average hours per night? You think? I don't know. Um, so 
I pulled an all-nighter this week to finish an article, but I would say in general, I'm probably averaging eight. Uh, and, and sometimes that's like getting in bed, staring at the ceiling and getting five and getting like 11 or 12 on the weekends. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sleeping more like a real person these days. That's good. All right. Last two, uh, as they already mentioned, sleeping in a cool room tends to help out quite a bit and check your mattress might be too old. That's a helpful tip. But, uh, yes, there's a lot of different things you can do that affect your, not just the amount of sleep you get, but also your sleep quality. I think that's something that people should consider. A lot of times people, it's like, well, I went to bed at this specific time and I woke up at that specific time, but sometimes they fail to account for the fact that they're rolling around all night and they're still tired all day despite the amount of sleep they're getting. Sleep quality is also really important. So there are some people who, even though technically they sleep seven hours a night or something, it's like, we still probably ought to look at this checklist and reevaluate if you're potentially hurting your sleep quality, which is still causing you to be really tired throughout the day. Just one more thing I would note as well, since there are, I mean, I would assume virtually everyone that listens to this podcast is a lifter. If you're doing everything you think you should be doing and you're in bed for enough hours and you do still feel super tired all the time, it's not a bad idea to go get checked for sleep apnea. Um, That does disproportionately affect lifters because one of the main risk factors for it is having a thick neck. And so, I mean, I don't think a ton of people do neck training, but I think most people's necks just naturally get a little bit thicker from lifting. Um, so yeah, if you do constantly feel super tired all the time, if a partner has complained about you snoring constantly, uh, not a bad idea to get checked for sleep apnea. Yeah. I I recently was struggling to sleep for, I mean, for like a million different reasons, but one of them was I was waking up because I was breathing poorly and I have a deviated septum from wrestling because I used to just slam my face into people, my, (laughs) my go-to wrestling move. (laughs) And uh, it explains a lot about my current appearance. But um, so I thought it was like, oh, well, you know, deviated septum, hard to breathe. Then I started using like an allergy nasal spray. And it's like, nope, you just had allergies. (laughs) Just didn't address it for like six months. But yeah. So anyway, moral of the story (laughs) is make sure you're breathing well when you sleep as well. Um, But yeah, it's a lot of that stuff's pretty obvious. But I think I think a lot of people, and I've I've fallen into this trap as well. It's like when you're sleeping poorly, it's like something that has happened to you that you have no ability to influence. And you're like, well, the sleep gods have frowned upon me lately, and it's like, well, there, there's actually some behaviors that you can that you can proactively address to try to increase the likelihood that you'll get good sleep. Sometimes people will go through all these and there's something else going on that they have to go and get some assistance with, you know, go see a sleep specialist. Your physician might refer you to do like a, an overnight observation period. So it's, it's not to say like if you're, if you're sleeping poorly, it's your fault because you're not doing things, but it is nice to know that there are things you can proactively manipulate to try to enhance your likelihood of sleeping well. Okay. We got another question for Greg here. It's by Connor Flynn. If soreness isn't a good indicator of gains, how do you tell how hard you should be training? Okay, so super simple and straightforward answer to this one. Just track your progress. Uh, So track your training, track your progress, keep good records of everything. And 
just see how hard you have to train to make gains. So it seems like a assumption or an assumption underlying this question is that the way you feel, you know, either later in the day after a training session or the day or two following a training session should be indicative to you of whether or not it was effective. Um, and I, I don't think that that's a good way to approach it simply because like measurable adaptations for people past the very early beginner stages of training do take weeks or months to accrue. And so the way you're feeling, you know, hours or days after a training session isn't going to be very indicative. It it can't be very indicative of, you know, what's going on over that entire multi-week or multi-month period. And so, yeah, I think your best approach is just keeping good records like a pen and paper journal. Um, Now there are apps that people use to track their training. Um, One that I recommend, full disclosure, I'm on their board, is called Gravitas. Um, I believe it's it's still only available available for iOS, but it's really good. Um, Or you could just like use a spreadsheet. I use spreadsheets. I love spreadsheets. Um, but just have some way that you're tracking your training, like you know what your training volume is, you know what exercises you're doing, you know your frequency, and you have some way to monitor progress. It doesn't necessarily have to be going for one rep maxes, even though that's not a bad way to track progress if you're a power lifter, obviously. But, you know, maybe your bread and butter workout is three sets of 10. If you're you know, being able to lift more weight for three sets of 10 on the same exercise than you were three months previously, that tells you you were training hard enough. Progress is occurring. Good things are happening. So yeah, you, in general, in general, if you're going for like a feeling after a training session, I kind of think a decent subjective way to feel after a session is kind of like, you wake up the next day and you're like, well, I couldn't do that same workout again today, but I don't feel like dog shit. I think that's kind of what you're aiming for. Like maybe a little achy, a little tired, but not like trash. I think that's not a bad subjective feeling to shoot for, which is kind of more all encompassing than just soreness of the prime movers that you just trained. Um, But yeah, that's still, I think, way worse than just actually tracking stuff, monitoring progress, monitoring your training volume, and just simply seeing, well, am I making gains? If so, cool, I have been training hard enough. That's probably a pretty good guide for how hard I need to train moving forward. Have I not been making gains and do I feel fresh all the time? Well, then I probably wasn't training hard enough. I need to do more to make gains in the future. Or am I not making gains and I feel like shit and worn down all the time? Well, maybe I was training too hard or, you know, maybe I wasn't sleeping well. Maybe I wasn't taking care of business outside the gym. But yeah, just objective markers of performance and training volume. Like, I, I think that that's what you should monitor and, and use to, to tell you whether you've been training hard enough. And if your urine's brown, you train too hard. <laughs> True. Yes. Uh, Okay, question for Eric. What are the best ways to do um, concurrent cardio, so low-intensity training or high-intensity training, along with lifting? 
Yeah, so I've got a, a brief anecdote about this. Uh, I was in Finland and I was talking about bodybuilding contest preparation from a research perspective. And uh, I didn't really study up on the event too much before I went there. I knew what I was going to do. I knew the general context and I was like, perfect. And I got there the first day and I was like, I probably should have considered the fact that uh, Professor Hakkinen was there, <laughs> as was uh, Yuha Atienen. And so like most of the really good concurrent training research for the last like ever basically came out of the, out of their lab. And I was like, oh God, I have some slides on concurrent training. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I was like, this is not my bread and butter. Like, but it seemed prudent when you're talking about bodybuilders who are lifting and doing a ton of cardio a lot of times. So I was really, really scared because they were in the audience. I was like, I hope they agree with me because if not, then I'm clearly wrong. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. not going to argue with them. Um, but in any case, uh, as I presented my slides, they smiled and nodded the whole time. So that was a good sign. Someone else at the event also did a talk specifically about concurrent training and all of our general recommendations lined up quite well. So I walked away feeling very good about myself. Now, when it comes to concurrent training, uh, there's a really nice review uh, by an author. The last name is, I'm going to, it's going to sound like a disease when I say this. That's clearly not how you pronounce it. To me, it looks like methanitis. That's how it looks to me too. Okay. Uh, but it came out in 2018. Very nice review um, talking about concurrent training. Obviously, th there is some potential to experience an interference effect, and that is, if you're doing a ton of aerobic training and a ton of resistance training, um, the signaling pathways that, that precede adaptations in the muscle to each of these types of training, they are to some extent at odds with each other. And we do see, um, as I kind of talked about in my presentation in Finland, nervously, when you see interventions where people are, are doing a ton of cardio and a ton of lifting, you do tend to see an interference effect present. But when they start getting a little bit more careful about the overall volume of both, those are the interventions where you really don't see much of a pronounced interference effect. Um, and so there are things you can do when it comes to intensity, volume, and timing that very much reduce the likelihood of a significant interference effect. Can I just throw one thing in here? Yes. So most, most people listening to this are pro probably either primarily have hypertrophy or strength goals. The other aspect of the interference effect that's not talked about quite as often is the impact of concurrent training versus resistance training alone on power output or mm -hmm. like high velocity stuff. And the literature as far as uh, like strength and hypertrophy goes does show that, yeah, you can mess with some of these variables and either negate the interference effect or at least minimize it pretty substantially. The stuff on power output is a little bit more dire. Mm -hmm. um, the interference effect is larger. It shows Much up larger. way, way larger. Yeah, yeah. It shows up in more contexts, etc. So like if you're just trying to build big legs or improve your squat and you want to do some cardio, like, yeah, you'll probably be fine. Uh, if, if you take the advice that Eric's about to give. But if, you know, if you're trying to put four inches on your vertical, probably not the best idea. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, it's pretty wild when you see the drop in power in some of those studies with the interference effect or just the lack of power adaptations that take place. 
Um, power is usually more affected than strength, and strength is usually a little more affected than hypertrophy, generally speaking. So I'm of the opinion that hypertrophy is the only thing that actually matters. <laughs> and so that that's why my answer is written from that perspective. Um, so w- with all these things, you know, power is tricky. But if you really want to include cardio and you really want to avoid uh, the interference effect, the first thing you want to do uh, is be, be really cautious about how much of both you're doing. And so like the, the thing I brought up in my slides about uh, physique athletes is like you'll see competitors in case studies and it's like they were lifting 90 minutes a day, six days a week, and they were doing at least four hours of cardio a week. That's a lot. That and they're oh by the way they're also eating at an enormous deficit like they're interfering all over the place but that's kind of the nature of the game but um something that you can do is try to you know limit the number of times per week that you're doing what I would call a real aerobic bout of exercise if you're taking a thirty minute walk just to get your energy expenditure up I don't consider that part of the game here we're we're talking about something where you're jogging or more in terms of intensity in my opinion or you know getting on the bike and doing some real dedicated pedaling a walk around the neighborhood i think you could probably do that to your heart's content uh, assuming it's not an outrageous number of hours you're spending doing that per day you're probably not going to interfere with much at all in my opinion um now i i would say the more you can limit your cardio sessions certainly the more you can limit the interference effect the tricky thing is a lot of times people will say, try to prefer high intensity intervals rather than, you know, lower intensity steady state cardio to an extent that's okay. And the understanding there is that when we took, we'll look at the different uh, molecular pathways that are stimulated by high intensity interval training, they're less at odds with what we're trying to achieve with strength training when you compare it to like traditional aerobic exercise the problem is if and we've talked about this on the podcast before as everybody found out in about 2010 if you just do like nine sessions of hit per week you're going to die like you're going to be so (laughs) fatigued and tired you're going to perform like crap so you have to strike a balance there like it's very easy to look at the molecular pathways and say oh we'll do the high intensity stuff but that fails to factor in the fact that really high intensity stuff will wreck you especially if you're lifting several times a week as well. So I think you have to strike a balance there. I usually don't like to see people doing, unless they really need to, more than two or three uh, cardio bouts per week. And I usually don't like to see more than one or two of them be high-intensity interval-type workouts. Um, but you, you have to get in there and, and work at an individual level and figure out what can we actually accommodate in terms of recovery and you have to be really, I would err on the side of caution and say, let's get away with as minimal cardio as we can uh, as the starting point and work up from there and see how much you can do before you start to really interfere with just overall fatigue day to day, the ability to perform, the ability to recover. Uh, another thing you can do is uh, separate the training bouts out. So there, there's all these different studies looking at like which one goes first, right? Aerobic training or resistance training if you're doing them at the same workout, right? So if you're going to go in the gym and do both, which you do first. So the the most recent meta-analysis on that, I forget who the author was, um, but <laughs> there were two groups that 
published basically the same meta-analysis in the same month, just in different journals, yeah. um, both looking at this question. And if memory serves, the the order that they were performed in didn't affect gains in aerobic performance, but um, doing the resistance training first was better for strength and hypertrophy. Yeah, if you look at the interference effect literature, um, it'd be really ideal if you could separate those out into different sessions, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times they'll say, if you can get away with it, do your, your resistance training and your cardio or aerobic training on separate days, kind of alternate throughout the week. Um, but, but they do say at, at minimum, it would be nice if you're really focused on strength, power, hypertrophy gains, if you could ideally give yourself at least a good three to six hours of separation between your cardio bout and your resistance training bout. So, I mean, the more you can separate them, the better. Um, but they, they tend to say at least three to six hours. If separating them is not an option and you're interested mostly in strength and hypertrophy, then you're going to do strength first followed by the cardio bout. Um, and then finally, one thing to keep in mind when you're balancing the overall volume and frequency of these workouts is keeping your main goal in mind. So what they recommend in this particular review, which I agree with, is uh, if your main focus is on your resistance training adaptations, you, you probably shouldn't be doing three cardio bouts for every lifting bout you have. Like the, the numbers don't make sense there. So you, you, you want to do a ratio of two to one or three to one resistance training bouts to cardio bouts per week. Um, and they say, uh, you know, obviously that, that ratio can get a lot more even if, if the main focus is on aerobic training. But, you know, a lot of times you'll see people who their main focus is resistance training, but they're trying to lean out and they're doing as many cardio bouts per week as resistance training bouts. And I think that's probably, uh, that's probably going a little, a little too far with the cardio, especially if they're pretty vigorous bouts. Mm-hmm. If I can add one thing to this as well. Um, so this, this is something that's a little bit more tentative. Um, and I just kind of, I guess, discovered it in the literature um, this past month when I was writing an article for Mass. But it kind of seems that if you are doing concurrent training, that it may be a little bit more important to also make sure you're not doing your your resistance training to failure. So the thing that put me onto this is there was a paper published last month uh, by Carol et al., where they had one group training to failure, not every set to failure, but every set pretty close to failure and the last set of every exercise to failure. And then the other group training generally about two to six reps shy of failure. Um, Did that for 10 weeks of memory serves. And they were also doing two sprint training sessions per week. And by and large, what you see in the literature, if you look at like the failure versus non-failure stuff, is either more hypertrophy when training to failure or similar hypertrophy between the two conditions. In this paper, the group not training to failure um, had significantly larger increases in anatomical cross-sectional area of the quads and non-significant larger differences. So so like kind of leaning in that direction, but p-value not quite below 0.05. Um, for type 1 fiber cross-sectional area, type 2 fiber cross-sectional area, and vastus lateralis thickness as well. So 
this is re- really kind of the first study I've seen in that body of literature leaning really hard in favor of not training to failure. Um, and so the interesting thing is they did have a couple cardio sessions per week in that study as well. So I went back and looked through the concurrent training literature to see the concurrent training studies where the concurrent training group actually grew more than the group only doing resistance training. And I could find four studies. Two of them, it's kind of hard to parse. They were by Lundberg et al., if memory serves. Um, and the resistance training was uh, isokinetic stuff. So it's it's hard to know exactly how that would apply to, um, to just normal isotonic training. The other two, though, one was by Casior et al., and one was by Nicola et al., and in both of those studies, the majority of the training was not done to failure. So in the Casior study, I want to say like 18 out of the 21 training sessions weren't to failure, and in the Nicola study, I want to say 14 out of the 21 weeks of training weren't done to failure, uh, which is pretty cool. Like, 21-week training studies is pretty long for the literature. Um And so both of those studies saw more hypertrophy when doing concurrent training versus only resistance training. And in the Carroll paper, it saw more hypertrophy. So it was two concurrent training groups, but one of them wasn't training to failure. And they had more growth than the group training to failure. So that's notable because for most of the the training literature that's out there, you just have people do resistance training to failure because that's a good way to you know, standardize stuff and make sure people are actually training hard and not just sandbagging you the whole time. And so it it's something where I, I guess one could potentially theorize that rather than an interference effect, maybe it's slightly synergistic um, doing cardio plus non-failure training. That may be a bit of a stretch, but I think what we can say with slightly more confidence than that is if you are doing concurrent training, I think it becomes even more important for your resistance training to not be done to failure. Um, Maybe just because the added fatigue of training to failure when compounded with uh, the extra fatigue from the concurrent training really just digs you into a bigger hole. Um, And the other thing I'll note, which I don't think you touched on, is that when you look at the interference effect literature, it's really only for the lower body. So the studies that have looked at whether doing like, you know, running or cycling affects hypertrophy, you see it with lower body stuff, but not upper body stuff. Yeah. So, you know, if you compete in the board shorts division and you just need to look good from the waist up, probably doesn't really matter. I I think I would suspect that it doesn't matter based on the literature we have. I, but I, I would also caution people who do compete in the physique division, you know, board shorts, not to get too attached to, like, interference effect happens on a spectrum, right? Yeah, yeah. I, and, I mean, it, it's clearly something where the dose makes the poison. Right, yeah. So the, the thing that always kills me is, like, when people are, it's like you, you're, you know, competing in something that is theoretically based on, especially if you're natural doing physique, uh, the physique uh, category, you're still trying to get as big as you can. Like there's, there's no way natural. Who's like, ah, just too big. (laughs) There's probably like four, four physique uh, competitors out there who are like, yeah, I need to, I need to chill. 
but realistically, like, I, I mean, can we just say it? Like, f- physique is like, it was made for the non-tested federation, so people didn't have to have like a million grams of tests per week. Yeah, isn't that pretty much the deal that we're comfortable with? Yeah. So, like, in natural, like, you're still trying to get big, and the thing that kills me is when people are dieting hard and lifting hard, and they're doing six hours of moderate intensity cardio per week it's like maybe it's not the same interference effect that we're seeing you Mm -hmm. know that kind of local within within the particular muscles acting Mm -hmm. but your lifting is going to suck yeah and and another thing to note is the concurrent training literature we have isn't also looking at people in big calorie deficits right and one just fun little physiology fact for people out there is if you're in a big calorie deficit and carbs are low as well doing doing lower body cardio stuff can cause glycogen depletion in your upper body via uh the wonders of the lactate shuttle where basically like you can metabolize carbohydrate into lactate in like your arms pec shoulders whatever and then that lactate is shuttled to your lower body converted back into carbohydrate and used for aerobic or anaerobic metabolism so yeah, th- that that is a good point. Um, in in the literature, it doesn't really seem like the interference effect really hits the upper body all that much, assuming you're doing lower body dominant cardio. But yeah, it wouldn't shock me if things changed in an energy deficit, or especially if you're doing really really high volumes of cardio. Okay, question for Greg: What effects can active release therapy, acupuncture, massages, and stretching have on training? So that's a good question, um, and I'm mostly only going to answer the back half of it. Um, I'm not aware of much research at all on active release therapy. I, I know what it is. I know how it's marketed and how it's supposed to work, but I just haven't seen much high-quality research on it, period. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. That's just not an area of research I pay much attention to, and in the handful of journals that would publish ART research, um, theoretically, I haven't come across it when doing the journal sweeps for mass. So I don't think there's that much out there. With acupuncture, um, acupuncture is one of those things where it occasionally seems to have an effect, but only not in placebo-controlled studies. And so someone may be wondering, what is a placebo-controlled acupuncture study? And... um, So there's two ways you can do one. The first way is like acupuncture is based on a bunch of ideas that are largely unproven about how like chi flows through the body and how you can like how adhesions or like muscle knots or something can block the flow of chi and like the needles can help the chi flow better and whatnot. And so one way you can do a, a sham treatment for acupuncture is like some people get the needles put where the needles are supposed to go to release the chi and other people just get needles put in like random spots that are like close to those positions. Uh, and the other way, which I think is is cooler personally, is some people actually get needles stuck in them and some people just get poked with toothpicks. Um, which like, I, I don't know how good of a sham treatment that is. Cause, um, I've never had like traditional Chinese medicine type acupuncture done, but I've, I've had dry needling done on me before. 
And I feel like I'd be able to tell the difference between a needle going in and just being stuck with a toothpick. What's the pain level on, on dry needling? Low. Really? I mean, like, it's it's weird. It's like, um, for me at least, it it's low-grade pain and also low-to-moderate-grade tickly. Huh. Um, it, yeah, it feels weird. I don't know. But but it feels substantially different than getting poked with a toothpick. It's very different. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so basically in the... In the studies where there's no sham treatment or placebo, acupuncture maybe seems to do some stuff, but when you introduce a sham treatment to compare it against, it doesn't really seem to do anything that the sham treatment doesn't do. And so, like, there's a general principle that if if someone's dealing with some shit, like, kind of doing anything kind of helps a little bit. Um so as far as acupuncture goes, it's probably that acupuncture itself doesn't really do shit, but just going to have someone do something to you that is theoretically supposed to help helps you out, even if what they're actually doing is generally ineffective. Um, so that's ART and acupuncture. Uh, massages and stretching, though, there is more high-quality research on that. And for massages, they actually seem to be really good stuff. Um, there was a meta-analysis that I reviewed for Mass a while back that it, it it synthesized the findings of like 130 different studies that looked at different recovery modalities or different modalities purported to be recovery modalities. So that included uh, massage. It included um, just like active recovery. It included stretching. It included water immersion, compression garments, probably a few more that I'm forgetting, but probably like 10 to 12 different therapies. And within that meta-analysis, post-workout massages seemed to do the best for, for both like objective recovery of performance after a hard training session. And if memory serves, that meta-analysis also looked at like subjective um, like personal assessments of soreness and, and recovery. And so post-workout massages seem to be really good. The thing to note there, though, is in the studies that look at the effects of massage on recovery from exercise, it's generally like you do a really intense training session and then immediately get a massage. So it's not like, you know, you do several weeks of training and now you're getting kind of sore and your joints are cranky and then you go get a massage. Like, that's not what the research is on. It's like, you know, you know you're doing a brutal deadlift day and you schedule a massage where you can drive straight from the gym to the massage parlor. Um, and so in that context, massage seems to be great. I don't know. I haven't seen much research on massages used, I think, the way people typically use them as just kind of a way to feel better after several accumulated weeks of training. So I, I'm not so sure about that, but yes, directly post-exercise massages are great. Um, stretching, I think, is a little bit misunderstood. So I remember, <laughs> man, so back in, you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s, everyone was like super pro-stretching. If you were on any sports team ever, your coach would have you do some sort of static stretching before exercise. Just thought, you know, that was a part of any complete warm-up. It would help prevent injuries. 
help improve performance, whatever. Like everyone was all about stretching. And then some research started coming out showing that, eh, well, maybe pre-exercise stretching doesn't really affect injury risk. Um, maybe intense pre-exercise stretching can decrease velocity, can decrease power output. And then everyone got super anti-stretching uh, roundabout, what would you say, Eric? Maybe like 2005 or so? I'd say that's when it started. And, uh, you know, and I would say in like 08, 09. By about 2011, that's when it's like, if you were like, hey, why don't we get around and stretch? It'd be like, you're a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Who invited you? So, and, and that's kind of where people still are today. Yeah, so still like that. We, we felt betrayed by all of the stretching we had to do growing up. Some research came out that said maybe stretching isn't the bee's knees. And so now, like almost without context, a lot of people are super anti-stretching and especially static stretching. Um, you know, some people say like, ah, maybe like active stretching, that's kind of good. But what's the difference between active stretching and just like a normal dynamic warm up? Like, I, I don't think there is one. Um, but yeah, people aren't crazy about static stretching. Um, and, and I think that that is probably not a bad way to be in the pre-workout like warm-up window but i do think that there are some some instances where stretching is still really useful that people have just lost nuance from being just super anti-stretching and so um what we know is that doing really intense static stretching right before some sort of physical performance can decrease force output decrease power output if you do really intense stretching right before resistance training, so you know, you're you're doing leg press and you stretch your quads super hard right before each set, uh, you actually see decreased hypertrophy from that. Um, so that's no good. Um, but if you do light sets of stretching between exercises, that seems like it may actually increase hypertrophy a little bit. So at this point, I believe there's only one study on it. Um, and I think it was, I think it was from, uh, D'Souza. Yeah. I was going to say, I think that's from yeah. D'Souza. Um, and I'm pretty sure he's working on a follow-up to that in trained lifters now, but in the, in the prior study, it was on untrained lifters and the stretching they had them doing between sets was light stretching. So it was below the point of discomfort. I want to say if it was like, a scale from zero to 10 where zero is no stretch at all. And 10 is super intense, intensely painful stretch. Grade three tear. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, I want to say the prior study had, had people at like a four ish. So like light stretching between sets in one study, um, has boosted hypertrophy. So, so that's pretty cool. Um, and then where stretching is still really useful, I think is away from training. So, you know, not like super intense stretching during a workout, not stretching when you're warming up to train, but maybe after a session and certainly like, you know, maybe in the morning hours before a training session or at night hours after a training session. Um, there was, again, a systematic review that I looked at for mass that was looking at the effects of uh, prolonged stretching interventions on muscular performance. And most of the studies... So I, I want to say all of the studies in that systematic review either found a neutral or positive effect. I don't think any of them found a negative effect on, on muscular performance. Um, 
but yeah, like, so one of the things that I think most people know is that acute static stretching doesn't really cause changes in range of motion all that much. So, you know, you stretch your hamstrings, hold that stretch for like two or three minutes, you get deeper into it. Cool. 10 minutes later, you no longer have more hamstring extensibility than you did prior to stretching. But chronic static stretching does improve joint range of motion, tissue extensibility, like it does cause those chronic changes. Um, and it, it seems like it may help increase muscle force as well. And there's at least one study by Simpson and colleagues um, that found that just doing really intense static stretching of the calves actually caused calf growth uh, in the absence of training. So, like, stretching can improve range of motion, can improve tissue extensibility, may help improve strength, like augment the resistance training you're doing, light stretching between sets may boost growth. None of those things are going to make a night and day difference, like, no one is small because they didn't stretch enough, but it it can still have benefits, just not as intense static stretching while you're warming up for exercise. Okay, so the final question. I was actually on, I was a guest on James Walshammy's podcast. Um, one of the concepts that kind of came up, we, we talked for like an hour and a half, so... It was a very small portion of what we talked about, but one of the things that came up that I thought was a good question that he posed was, how do you reconcile, you know, valuing research with the likelihood that there's some degree of pretty bad research out there and that a lot of people can't really tell the difference between good and bad research, you know? So how do you tell somebody, go dig into this research knowing that there's probably a very small, a small amount of stuff that's kind of like fraudulent, a decent amount that might be poorly done or poorly interpreted by the researchers themselves. And then also the fact that most people won't be able to really discern the good studies from the bad. So how, how do you reconcile that? That's a good question. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> one of the things I'll say is I feel like, I feel like, it's not that much of a problem because there's not that many people that actually read research in the first place. Um, so like I have site data for stronger by science, obviously, and I can look at how many page views we have and how many clicks on the, like on links within the pages take place. And so I can see what the likelihood is that a page view will result in someone clicking over to like clicking a PubMed link or going to a journal site. And, you know, I, I don't know from there if they're reading the full text or just skimming abstracts or just clicked it by accident, but just simply going to one of those places to theoretically look at an abstract and maybe read the full text. And it's like one out of a thousand page views actually results in uh, someone going to a journal site. So, I mean, I would say our audience is a lot more science savvy and interested in and passionate about research than most online fitness folks. Like, I feel very confident saying that. And still, basically, no one in our audience is seemingly is interested in reading the research that we talk about. <laughs> so, part, part of me thinks that 
it, it can't be that big of a problem because there's not that many people trying in the first place. Uh, and then the other thing I'll say is I think, I think that it's important for, I think it's important for people who do talk about research to not idealize it too much and not be salesmen almost. Uh, Cause like the, the whole point of science is it's supposed to be, like objective and circumspect. And I think that I think that one issue that's out there with science communication generally is a lot of folks are more cheerleaders for the concept of science than people willing to like pull back the veil on how dirty it can be at times, which I, I kind of get because there is like an anti-science, anti-intellectual sentiment that I don't think is the majority of the culture, but it at least runs through the culture. And so if you're like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye, you don't want to go out there and say like, hey, guess what? Like maybe half of the research in psychology doesn't replicate. Like <laughs> that, that, that would be a good way to, you know, really reinforce really bad ideas that a lot of people have about science. Yeah. Um, but I think that within a community of people who do generally value science, I think at that point you don't want to be a cheerleader anymore and you do need to be uh, open about the fact that like, yeah, some of this stuff isn't that good. And I think that that in and of itself helps provide a shield against people um, who, who might go into it with too much naivete. Cause like, I think some people just aren't on the lookout for bad stuff. They think peer review is perfect, and if something gets past peer review and published, it's good shit. And if people know that that's not always the case, they at least know to look for some stuff. And then if you tell them, hey, here's some stuff that you should look for. Um, I wrote a whole article about this on Stronger by Science, like some of the hallmarks of research that could be sketchy or research that's really good, um, which we can link in the show notes. If you know some of the things to look for, then that helps a lot. And then the last thing I would say is like, I would say, <laughs> I mean, I know the path I took. I assume it's similar to the path you took. And I think it's the path that a lot of people who read research more skeptically took is just like, I think everyone kind of goes into it wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and thinks that everything's great. And then, you know, you read something about the replication crisis and you're like, oh, maybe this isn't perfect. You come across a handful of papers where you're like, ooh, I don't consider myself an expert, but I'm pretty sure that this is bullshit. And then just over time, you develop more and more skepticism and you learn more and more ways to pick out stuff that may be suggestive that something isn't awesome. Um, so I, I mean, I think as with most things, you try something at first, you suck at it, and you get better at it over time. Like I know I'm, I know I'm better at interpreting research now than I was when I first started writing about research on Stronger by Science. Like, or well, at the time, GregKnuckles.com, like seven years ago. Like I, I sucked ass at interpreting research back then. I was terrible, but like I've done a bunch of it and I've gotten better. And I think that, I think that a lot of times not just with interpreting research but in all things people worry too much about well what if someone tries this and they're bad it's like well of course they'll be bad like you're bad at everything until you're good at it and so yeah i mean 
I think <laughs> I think most people will interpret research poorly and be too naive about it when they first start doing it. And that doesn't bother me because as I see it, as long as they stick with it, they'll probably get better over time. And an important part of that process is, especially when you're first starting out, so you want to subscribe to mass, uh, read the papers we talk about, check your interpretations against ours. That's, that's the number one way. I honestly don't know of a different way to get into it. I wasn't going to mention our product by name. I know I, that was, but that was a little sarcastic. I mean, it's yeah. a great product. I would recommend you do that, but yeah, the, but... the, the bald faceness of that sales pitch was meant somewhat <laughs> as a joke. But no, it's it's really important. I think when you're first trying to figure out, like, am I good at interpreting this stuff to check and see how other people interpreted the same thing, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, because like the thing that scares me a lot of times about taking a totally self-taught approach in anything without having anyone else in your circle or some kind of mentor or somebody to keep you on track is like you could do a thing. But if it's completely self-guided and you never have any checks in the process, you could just be wrong many, 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 many times for as long as you'd like. But trying to figure out like having some kind of outside, uh, some kind of check in place to figure out if you're actually getting it or not, I think is big. The other thing you mentioned the process for a lot of people is you you come into it uh, very naive and just assuming, well... (laughs) Well, it got published. I'm sure it's fine. Mm-hmm. So my my trajectory was kind of similar, but I think the people who go straight through with their education, because you you took an interesting route. I mean, you got into the interpreting research game before going back to grad school. Mm-hmm. The the thing that I've seen with people who go straight through their schooling right off the gate, right off the bat, like right out of the gate, is you start out very naive, the same place, and you think, well, if it got published, I'm sure it's perfect. But then in grad school, you take your first class where they teach you to like be skeptical of research and then you start tearing every study apart (laughs) and like you have no context for it, but you just open a paper and say, I'm going to find a bunch of annoying things to complain about. And you open it up and you're like 16 weeks for a training study. I would have done 60. Oh man. You know, (laughs) no, it's so obvious when people are in that stage because it's, Their complaints are always, well, study should have been four years long and wouldn't it have been great if they had 200 subjects? Like, like those are the two main complaints everyone has. It's like, dude, come on. Like, yeah, it's always like, well, if you're going to do a deck, so the least you could do is feed them all their meals for three days prior. (laughs) Who knows what their glycogen was like? (laughs) It's like, like, dude, all we want to know is their fat free mass index. Who cares? But I mean, yeah, so it, I think some people, depending on their trajectory, also fall into this very treacherous valley of being so hypercritical, but adding no value in their critique. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's just yeah. like, yeah, I know some highlights to complain about. And then it's like, and then then those very same students have to do a thesis project. Oh, dog. The, so the one that pisses me off the most, I think I've talked about this on the show before, but holy shit, this pisses me off, is when a paper reports an association makes no causal claims about that association whatsoever. And then motherfuckers get on social media and they're like, oh, well, correlation doesn't prove causation. It's like, you you dumb bitch. No one said that it proved causation. Like, you're just pulling this shit out of thin air to, to jerk yourself off. Like, 
no one's no one's saying it's causal like you look you look stupid stop it correct people do that all the time and it it makes me so mad yeah but it, it is funny when, when those students like you know one month into into grad school they're tearing apart every paper and then they do their thesis project <laughs> and after they do a research project they're like okay maybe i should lighten up yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, if I could make my own very obvious sales pitch, the thing that I like about the group we have doing mass is that because we've all done original research, we don't take that route of just doing like cliche, like, it's just a correlation, could have been six times longer, could have had 300 <laughs> more subjects. But but yeah, I mean, the thing that I would always, or that, that I would uh, tell people who get a little annoyed when they see that like, well, if there's bad research out there, how am I supposed to tell how much to value this stuff is not to let that discourage you. Um, because there's a whole lot of people who are doing extremely good research. There's a whole lot of people who, uh, in all sorts of different platforms are interpreting that research and trying to make it accessible and turn it into guidelines. So there is a, a post publication filtration process that kind mm -hmm. of happens at all sorts of different levels all sorts of different platforms, but, but I guess my, my biggest question, um, is like, so if you're not going to value the research, the hell do you have? Like it, it's kind of the best we can do if we're trying to be objective about making sense of some of these questions, mm -hmm. you know? So if you're going to say, ah, the research, I don't really value it because some of it's not as good as the rest of it. And you're going to throw that out entirely. What are you left with? Yeah, it's it's almost like that. Uh, I'm gonna butcher this, but that Churchill quote about democracy. That's exactly like, what I was thinking of. Yeah, like democracy sucks, but it's the least bad system we've found so far. Exactly, or something to that extent. Yeah, I, I have the same approach for research. Like, we can't guarantee that everything that that gets published is going to be perfect and interpreted well, and even applicable to what you're doing. But it's by far the best thing we got. Yeah, and, and the other thing I'll note as well is I think I think it's improving all the time. Um, like, I mean, j just going back and looking at some of the experimental designs and some of the statistical reporting, uh, the stuff that was being done in like the 90s, things have gotten a lot better since then. Um, having conversations with people who are in research about like open science stuff and like replication stuff like that and uh statistical reporting and just stats in general um a common thing that people are saying is like the the reproducibility crisis in psychology and biomedicine i think woke a lot of people up in a lot of different fields and like two or three years ago when a lot of that stuff was coming out if i mentioned problems with reproducibility and you know P less than 0.05 doesn't necessarily mean a finding is legit and will replicate. A lot of people in exercise science would look at you like you had a third eye. Like, what the fuck are you saying? Like, it has to be good. Look how low that P value is. Like, there's no trash getting published. But I think that, I think it was like a big shock that took a while to reverberate through all of the sciences. And I think a lot more people have woken up to some of the issues that had been in science for a long time. And so, I mean, I think our field's improving. I think all fields are improving. Um, and I, I think that a lot of the problems that exist in the literature, there are a lot of like very smart, very dedicated people who are working 
at cleaning those things up. Um, and, and I mean, that's the beauty of science because like most people who get into science do get into it for the right reasons. Um, by a lot, yeah. by, by a wide margin. Yeah, 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 for sure. Cause I mean, dude, it's, it's hard work. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's, there's a reason that me and Eric aren't in academia. <laughs> Um, I mean, the, the work to compensation ratio with that level of education doesn't really make sense unless you're, you're doing it because you love it. Um, and so, I mean, I think most people mean well, and they're learning more about things that they may have done previously that weren't great. And since most of the people involved in the process do have the right intentions and the right motivations, I think it's a system that is easier to self-correct than most systems would be. Um, so yeah, like it, it's it's not perfect. It's, I think, better now than it was 10 years ago. I think it was better 10 years ago than it was 20 years ago. And things are on a generally positive trajectory. All right. So as always, thank you for listening. Uh, little update. We have a new process for submitting questions. We used to have a very disorganized thread on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That was a nightmare to comb through. So now we actually have a, uh, a Google forum that you can, you can go to the link and you can submit your questions in there in a very organized way. And we always welcome your questions. So if you have a question that you want answered on the show, Greg, what's the, the URL they can go to? So you can find it in, in the show notes or you can just type in tiny.cc slash SBSQA for Stronger by Science question and answer. So very, very easy and accessible way to get your questions on the show, and we'd be happy to have them. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.